Welcome to the radioactive summer break, folks. I'm Laura Jones. Thanks for tuning in. It is back to school season, and I just want to remind you that tomorrow is the drop-off deadline for the back-to-school supplies drive that the Friday Night Fallout folks are doing. Drop-off backpacks, notebooks, pens, paper, and lightly used laptops, phones, and flash drives at Uprock, 1594 South State Street in Salt Lake City. Tomorrow is the deadline. Donations benefit the kids of the Capital West Boys and Girls Club. It's organized by Keith McDonald of Friday Night Fallout and the Community Action and Fellowship Foundation. More details on our website, krcl.org, where you can connect with local nonprofit organizations. Coming up, Salt Lake Community College student journalist Christian Martinez, whose story about a DACA student and muralist was recently published by the Salt Lake Tribune through its partnership with Amplify Utah. Their work amplifies the voices of the underrepresented in our community. Kilo Zamora, professor of gender studies up at the University of Utah, wants your input on a new class he's developing on gender and nature. So later this hour, I'll share a conversation that he and I had with Sylvia Torti, a biologist, writer, and dean of the Honors College at the university, to get the whole ball rolling. Stick around to find out how you can shape this class. He wants it to reflect the community. Now, it may have cooled off this week with the rain, but we've still got our Songs of Summer playlist to build. So to get us started tonight, a pick from Christian Martinez. Christian, we're doing Songs of Summer where we ask our guests and listeners to play DJ and share a song from their playlist and dedicate it to someone they love, a cause they support, or just provide some general musical inspiration. What do you got? I, I'm a fan of this uh, band called Bon Iver. I don't know if uh, <laughs> you've heard of them. Uh, oh, yes. <laughs> uh, and one song that I've been really uh, attached to recently is their song 45 from their album 22 a million, I think it is. I think the song, it's lyrically simplistic, but yet I think it's so, I don't know, it's really powerful. It's just, I get I get goosebumps every time I listen to it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I uh, I guess I I would say I would dedicate it to any to anyone listening. I hope it can be an artistic inspiration or perhaps just a personal inspiration for somebody out there. So you're sending goosebumps to the community. I hope so. I hope they can get goosebumps just like I do. Songs of Summer on KRCL's Radioactive Summer Break. <laughs> Did you know that a portion of your Amazon purchases could benefit KRCL? Support local nonprofits, including KRCL, through Amazon Smile by visiting smile.amazon.com and selecting your preferred organization. Find details under the support tab at krcl.org. Thanks. Thank you for all of your support. Many different ways that you can support listeners' Community Radio of Utah. Find out more at krcl.org. I'm Laura Jones, and you're listening to the Radioactive Summer Break, Community Amplified, and more music discovery every weeknight at 6. Still to come, Professors Kilo Zamora and Sylvia Torti talking with me about gender and nature. We're working at a new course for Zamora, who's part of the Gender Studies faculty at the U. But right now, another conversation in our Back to School series with student journalists. My name is Christian Martinez, and I'm a journalism student at LCCC. My story with the Amplify Utah Project and Salt Lake Tribune 
is SLCC graduate brings journey to United States to on-campus mural. Christian, thanks for giving us some time. Let's talk about developing this story and why you chose it. What attracted your attention to the story of a DACA student who came to Salt Lake from Mexico at 10 years of age? We're talking about Augustine Bautista Silva. At the time I was in the 1130 journalism class, um, we were pitching stories. So um, I, I browsed through the school's event calendar and I noticed that there was a posting for a mural unveiling. Um, so at the time, there wasn't any like details about who the muralist was. There was just a, it was just like a posting to let people know that there would be an unveiling. So I pitched the idea. Um, I, I, I kind of knew, well, I, I had just expected that there would be an interesting story behind the mural. So uh, upon speaking to the muralist, uh, this this story of um, of wanting to uh, represent um, the Latinx people or the Latinx community at the uh, at the college on through um, through art was the story that eventually emerged from the story. Um, so, I mean, the school is doing a lot to um, represent its the Latinx community in in its spaces. But one of the one of the ways that they were starting was with uh, with this mural. Yeah, a literal, physical, visual representation. So tell mm -hmm. us about your subject, Augustine Bautista Silva. Yeah, so uh, he came to the United States at the age of 10 with uh, his brother. Um, he grew up in uh, Rose Park, the Rose Park neighborhood here in Salt Lake City. Um, he initially, he wanted to um, college was in his initial plans. He wanted to join the military. Um, but, uh, unfortunately he was, uh, um, he was rejected because he doesn't have permanent residency here in the United States. Um, from there, he was a bit, uh, lost about what he wanted to do. Um, but during high school, a, he took a robotics class and he became interested in that. And he had this uh, teacher who was really supportive of him and encouraged him to pursue that in, into college. So the teacher paid for his application fee and um, did everything, helped him along the process. And eventually he joined SLCC. Um, he mentioned that upon joining, it was very difficult for him to, to uh, I guess, integrate with the school because he had trouble finding people who were like him. So, yeah. mm -hmm. so you, oh, you, yeah, you talk in the story about his search for finding a place he belonged. And in fact, an interesting stat that dovetails with the census information that just came out, you note that um, Hispanic students account for nearly 20% of Salt Lake Community College's student body, according to their own fact book and data from 2020. And then the census data that just came out says that one of every four Utahns is a minority so a growing population that needs to see itself in these institutions of higher learning it sounds like that's part of his story and the murals yeah he uh he mentioned that uh there, there was a group at the time called um i think it had a different name but it was changed to the school's lucha group i think it's uh the student club and he he said that joining that group uh which is a group of you know latinx members helped him to uh, keep pursuing college, especially because I know he took a year off to pay for school. Uh, so, you know, finding people who were like him and also 
um, connecting to staff who were encouraging him was a big part of his process of uh, continuing and eventually graduating from SLCC. So describe the mural for us. Um, so the mural is, uh, is uh, so two hands are kind of uh, opening up and then from the hands is a monarch butterfly. Uh, so it emerges and there's like a, a trail that kind of uh, uh, demonstrates its movement. Uh, so to uh, Augustine, um, it represents this, uh, this, this migration that butterflies themselves have uh, throughout the year moving around the country as the climate changes. And this uh, thematic uh, representation of migration is very, uh, to him it was emblematic of uh, migrations from people who are from South America or the uh, or uh, middle uh, like Mexico like he is of migrating from the uh, from Mexico to the United States. So for him that was the direct uh, analogy or representation of his own journey. Um, he hopes it connects with not just um, people who themselves migrated such as Augustine but also people who have um, ancestors who they themselves migrated to the United States. So Christian as part of the Amplify Utah project and passing the microphone to folks whose stories don't always make it to the front page, let alone B12. Why was it important, do you think, to, to help this story surface? So there's a lot of um, just smaller stories that are often overlooked, um, not out of like malice or anything, but just because um, I guess uh, they just sometimes there isn't a place for these stories to be shared. So um, sharing this story just, this, uh, this development, you know, for the mural, it was like a little uh, happening um, that was occurring at the college. So I think just sharing the way that the, the school itself is moving and progressing and trying to represent its community, I thought that that was very important. So um, these smaller stories, I think, are, are really good to share just because it can reveal a lot of uh, um, happenings or realities that are often not talked about. Um, just because they're such smaller stories, but yet they're very representative of a specific community. Um, and it's important, I think, that that is shared. So I, that's, I think that's what I would say. It's the next generation of journalists. Do you think these are more of the stories we need to focus on as a community to really see each other? Mm, I, I would say so. Um, these, these smaller stories kind of um, allow people to um, become aware and empathize with a different group of people who we might not even be either aware of or just aware of what they are experiencing. Um, so I do think, you know, like these smaller local stories, um, I think are very important for a community to better understand itself and to um, then work to be able to, you know, do something of local issues or perhaps just to become more understanding of our neighbors. So where is your journalism career taking you next? What stories are you looking into or are you going to pursue this further in your education, Christian? I, I hope to pursue this further. Um, I'm not too entirely sure what lies in a few years ahead of me, but uh, I'm currently um, still at the Globe, which is a SLCC's uh, newspaper. Um, I'll be sticking with them for, I hope, a, long, uh, a while more. Yeah, a long more time. Uh, I'm currently working on a, on a new story. I don't want to say too much about it because there's, 
um, still some things uh, that are being worked out, but um, it's about the uh, Columbus Center in South Salt Lake City. Um, the U City Council was uh, tasked with a name proposal um, after a youth member wrote in a letter to the South Salt Lake City Council um, uh, to speak about how the name is, or the youth member does not think that the, the name Columbus is appropriate for the community that the center uh, serves. So the U City Council was tasked with the name proposal and there are, there's, there's support, but there's also a lot of opposition to the name change. Um, well, when you have that story, we'd love to have you come back and share it. Yeah, yeah, I will be, I will be, it would be a pleasure. Christian Martinez, student journalist at Salt Lake Community College. You can see the mural he wrote about on the Taylorsville campus of SLCC, also known as Slick. Check tonight's show notes for a link to his story published by the Salt Lake Tribune. It's part of a new collaboration with Amplify Utah, a nonprofit that believes the power of good student and community journalism can help amplify, empower, and elevate diverse voices through engaged storytelling. I'm Laura Jones, and it's only been two days of rain, but I'm already missing the sun. I know, that's that's crazy during this drought, but Fishbone agrees. Here's some everyday sunshine on KRCL. This is the radioactive summer break. You're listening to KRCL 90.9, and I'm Laura Jones. This next conversation is actually a bit of a focus group. Professor Kilo Zamora called me up about doing some interviews on the show and crowdsourcing for a new class on gender and nature that he's developing for 2022. Joining us will be Sylvia Torti, a biologist, writer, and dean of the Honors College at the U, where Zamora is on the Gender Studies faculty. Their relationship goes back a ways and dovetails with the topic at hand. I'm guessing the two of you know each other and maybe go back a ways. Tell us the origin story here, Kilo. Well, I was um, invited by Sylvia Torty and Kim Hackford Peer to co-teach a class with Kim, who's a, just a genius of a teacher, um, a course on campus that hadn't been taught before called uh, The Queer Activism Think Tank in the Honors College. And it scared me to death the idea of teaching the class. The word queer at the time uh, was, was thought of as a very controversial word. And yet Sylvia was brave and thought it would be of right time. And Kim and I taught it. And it was a year long think tank in the Honors College. And that actually was my enormous stepping, stepping off into uh, gender studies teaching. So I kind of have some of that origin story uh, to think Sylvia for. So Kilo, you've gathered us here today because you've got this big idea. Can you kind of give us the landscape here before we get going? Yeah, the, here's the landscape. Teachers today should be changing the way in which they approach their syllabus. And what I mean by that is that there are so many brilliant people out there who could help inform the way a class is taught and thought about. And the more fingerprints we have on it, the better I think we get in terms of offering our students curriculum. And this specific course, Gender and Nature, through the Gender Studies Division at the University of Utah, was just that opportunity. Like, what does it mean when I engage brilliant minds to explore this topic 
way outside of the classroom box. And where could we go with it? It's such an open-ended class. So the idea was bring folks together, bring them onto KRCL, explore it without parameters, with creative minds, and ask your listeners if things spark in them to also write to me. And together we create this class together um, and like co-construct it and then deliver it back to our students. So we're modeling a little bit of the conversation you're hoping to have while expanding the box of sources that you go to. Just like reporters, you kind of go to what you know. I'm guessing with teachers, if you teach a class again and again and again, or even in creating a new one, you kind of go to what you know. Yeah, exactly. You, okay. you, you see the world um, from your perspective. Yeah. Well, introduce us to one of your first out of the box. I just hit this. <laughs> introduce us to one of your first out of the box guests here. Okay. Well, I, I'm really uh, excited for the inaugural focus group to be with someone who I've admired for a very long time. And I met a decade ago, um, Dr. Sylvia Torty, the Dean of the Honors College at the University of Utah, an ecologist, um, a fiction writer. And I would say more than that from her bio, some things that aren't there. I, I find Sylvia to be a thought leader, a true creative, and someone who cares a lot about the well-being of students. So bringing Sylvia here today is about, um, for me, humbling and a little scary because I believe she epitomizes what we're talking about when we're thinking about what the, what the university has some of the best people to offer in terms of thinking creatively about topics. Welcome, Sylvia. Well, thank you very much. And thank you, Kilo, for that incredibly kind and generous introduction. So give us your initial thoughts when Kilo reached out and said, come on the radio and just kind of unpack this with us. Well, um, you know, when Kilo asks, it's always an interesting ask. It's always something that's going to make my mind work, um, which I love. Uh, I'll admit that I'm also a little intimidated by the topic because um, it's not something I've given deep, deep thought to, although certainly um, being a biologist, these topics of, you know, sex, gender, um, um, you know, mating structures and all of that is, is par for the course, you know, organisms reproduce and pass their genes on by um, engaging one another. And so um, as an ecologist, which is really what my training is, ecology is about the interaction of organisms. And we get to really see how uh, different sexes interact with one another in different environments and different um, situations. So it's, it's a, biology, I think is a very, fruitful area to come at these questions, um, not one I would have drawn on maybe myself. So I really love the invitation. Well, I'm thinking about the last time I really thought deeply about biology, and it was probably 10th grade <laughs> in biology. And then you go on to your adult life and you enter society and this notion, these broad strokes of gender um, kind of calcify, I think, in our community's imagination our politics, our religion, our discourse. So um, when the word gender comes up for you as an ecologist, can you reflect on that for, for us about how you think of that scientifically versus popular construct? Sure, that's a great question, Laura. Um, you know, biologists don't really think of gender. 
we, we think of sex of organisms, what, what their genes are and what they're gonna pass on and what they have the ability to pass on from one generation to another. So we don't really get mired in gender. When I think about gender and biology, I think about um, the way that human, human notions of gender have dominated the study of biology. So if you look back to the study of animal behavior, you know, all of the biologists were male and they all focused on male animals and they were all kind of ignoring the female animals until, you know, the great primatologist Jane Goodall and um, the, a couple of others who Richard Leakey put in the field as young, uh, not formally educated animal behaviorists started really paying attention, attention to what the other half of the population was doing. Um, but, but gender as a concept in and of itself isn't something that uh, comes up in biology. We don't really think about gender. Yeah, Sylvia, I mean, that's exactly why I'm engaging minds like yours, because it's not the default, right? Like, no, we don't think about gender, we think about sex. So, right. and when we're looking at these different species, different cell interactions, it's, it's just like, well, is there is sex involved? And how does it happen? However, there must be times in which you're exploring your science and you're wondering if maybe the rituals of sex and sexuality um, have gender attached to them from the, the animal or and or how your own gender identity is impacting the, the, your science and your ability to view that science. So if a male scientist is dominantly looking at male animals, well then, somewhere in there, their gender has clouded their ability to do great science. And opposite to that is their gender can also cloud their ability to see if there is any social constructs going on between those animals. Because now we're seeing that like ants, they have, and bees, they do have, they are social animals. Mm -hmm. And are there ways we might think about what gender is? Well, I'll answer your second question first. Um, absolutely agree with you that our um, genders that we have constructed for ourselves or perform or are conscious of or unconscious of, we take those into the workplace. And so, you know, if you um, are in the field and you're a female person, identified person or male identified person, um, depending on the culture you've brought up, come up in, you know, that will definitely influence what you're seeing. Um, I think that um, an older generation of biologists, you know, from the turn of the last century up until maybe the 60s, 70s, never gave that much thought. Um, certainly since the 70s and, and, and feminism and questions of gender, you know, younger biologists are thinking about this and even more so today. Um, that said, I don't think it the questions of our own uh, biases and and blind spots is really incorporated enough in the in the formation of biologists as it could be or should be, right? We we are biased in the way in ourselves, and we ought to be talking more about that. Science is supposed to be a um, you know analytical, objective endeavor, and we collect data so that we can run statistics to try to make it so. But fundamentally, we are always injecting a, a subjective point of view. Um, so definitely yeah. gender influences us. And I do believe we can be taught to pay more attention to it. Mm. Mm. So you. as you have um, engaged with students in the class and the conversation about gender has evolved 
in our society? Has that come into the classroom and into the science at all? Um, how do you balance that in uh, the way you work with ever that, that turnover of students and generations? Well, I think students right now are questioning gender in a way that um, we really never have before. And I love to be pushed on this um, um, because, you know, there, there may have been when I was studying 30 years ago as an undergraduate, right? There were questions of uh, female gender and male gender and biases and whatnot. But now this sort of um, breakdown of the binary is, I think, very exciting. Um, the way that I like to... I suppose subtly, but not so subtly, you know, uh, bring up these these issues, um, which is fundamentally, I think, the fluidity of of sex and let's say performance of gender, even if we don't technically call it that in science, um, is through the study of animal behavior. Once you start learning about animal systems, you realize that there is no binary. You know, there are animals like the clownfish. You know, these are these are tropical fish. There's a female that is basically dominant, and then there's a subordinate male with whom she mates with. Um, and then there's a whole school of males that swim with them, but the only mating pair are the female and the subordinate male. But if the female dies, the subordinate male turns into a female and then picks another male from the, the, the school. Wow, that's a whole new take on Finding Nemo, isn't it? Right. <laughs> <laughs> So they're all hermaphroditic by potential, and it depends on the environment and the situation, right? Or, or um, you could talk about baboons. You know, baboons. We think of you know these are these are primates, um, very hierarchical uh, um, societies. Uh, there's an alpha male. There are a number of males who are constantly competing to be alpha male. It's an extremely stressful environment. But there's a whole group of males who choose to disengage that strategy. And they're called often the uncle males. Um, they never engage in the fighting. Their cortical steroid levels stay low. They stay healthier. They're not beat up all the time. They pass their genes on from one generation to the next, essentially by helping their sisters raise their children. So it's like two strategies for moving your genes from one generation to the next by performing, quote unquote, different ways of being male. Different ways of being male. I was just reading a CNN article the other day about a community, and it escapes me which part of the world, but it's a tradition that's dying off um, as the village becomes more exposed to the rest of Albania. the world. Albania. I read Thank the same article. And it's where a woman can de declare herself essentially a male mm -hmm. and then is excused from any of the gendered duties in the village. Did you find that fascinating? I absolutely did. And it was such a complicated article because uh, a complicated story, because, you know, in one way, you, you know, the, these women are empowered by making this choice, but in another way, they're being criticized by more of them, you know, the modern city feminists saying, well, they aren't empowered at all because they didn't get to live their life as the woman they were, you know, because yeah. they don't consider themselves male, but they are, they, they say they're male, but then they talk to them and they tended to be rather transphobic as well. Yeah. It was just a fascinating article. I, I would recommend it to anyone interested in this. It was in the New York Times, I believe. I'll put a link in the show notes. And then also at the close of the Olympics, the uh, gold winning female shot put yep. athlete from China. What are the questions she gets asked? When will you basically start being more female? Yeah, it was and it was horrifying in a way. And I don't think it's a conversation that we would be so attuned to um, even 10 years ago. 
No. So both of you are like offering something that's sparking my imagination. And it's about the value for students to explore gender and context. Mm-hmm. Because both the examples that Sylvia, you offered on the clownfish and the baboon and Lara's examples from the New York Times article and the Olympics all have this context around what gender yeah, is and yeah. like how when we think about what and one of the goals of this class is for students to be able to participate and observe in nature and wonder how can that actually change the way they understand what their own gender is and inform them in new ways so the clownfish is a great example Sylvia like thinking about how when your context changes as the subordinate male um, but your life partner is passed and then you take on her role that happens also in in human life where we can take on different roles and our gender does change although we don't define it in that way we still use a binary term and i'm really excited for students to think about how can a clownfish actually be something that they think about when they think about the ways their genders are morphing. Well, there's your first assignment for the class. Yeah, <laughs> Clownfish and baboons. Clownfish and baboons. And, you know, thinking each of us, you know, I do think because again, we were brought up in a very binary world, um, you know, starting to think about consciously what gender am I performing? Sort of this acknowledgement that, you know, I have the chromosomes I have and we can label it whatever sex we want to label it, um, in my case, female. But our, 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 um, what, what, are, what are the ways I perform my gender? And getting students to think about, um, you know, or even writing down little anecdotes of when they might have performed that gender in a different way, what situation were they in, Um, You know, what were their choices in clothes? What were their choices in language? What were their choices in body language? I mean, I certainly know that um, when I'm in certain environments, you know, I'm in a skirt or dress and high heels. And I sometimes wonder to myself, why am I dressing up this way? You know, why am I not wearing my flat cowboy boots or whatnot, right? So like being really conscious of what we're performing at any given time, I think helps us to think more broadly about our um, fluidity in this regard. There's a certain and, aspect of the okay. scientific method going on there too, to constantly <laughs> ask why, yeah. why. Oh, I like that, Laura. That's good. I'm, so I want to come back to that for a second. So I'm thinking on the one hand, we, we will always in the class be wondering how our behavior is attached, is informed by our gender. I call it, are, is gender doing you or are you doing gender? That's kind ah. of the concept Mm -hmm. but I'm also thinking about if you were to take deep observation of a specific type of tree for example Mm -hmm. and watching the way that it chooses to respond in an environment and it it would be defined in one way for example as climate change is occurring Mm -hmm. we might see that the bark is a little softer but as the climate grows we might see that bark become more rough Mm-hmm. And wondering for the students by those deep observations, how that can help inform them of new ways of constructing a gender that was never taught to them or passed down. Yeah. And, and does that spark your imagination as an ecologist at all? 
Uh, I mean, it certainly does. I think in this in this case, I'd have them watch something more dynamic than a tree. Um, I, I studied trees, so I love trees, but um, you want them to have a little action, you know, um, but observation and paying close attention, I think is key to, um, well, key to much of our ability to really understand and, and ask questions about the world, right? We're visual animals, but we also look away very quickly. We have these a short attention spans. So an assignment that asked a student to spend a lot of time in a bunch of different observational bouts, watching an animal, perhaps their dog or their cat um, or a bird outside, maybe even better, um, would be very, uh, very constructive, I think. Cool. You know, as Thank I you. sit here and, and listen to us talk about this in the classroom setting, I then want to translate it to our wider audience. And um, basically what I'm hearing you say, uh, when you want to approach gender and exploring gender in nature and decolonizing it, it's really about putting conscious thought mm. into what perhaps you were programmed through um, nature, nurture. We can have that debate too from a child to an adult and how you are, who you are, is it a conscious choice versus accepting the gender label that your family, your friends, your society has put on you as a way to translate it from the classroom, I think, to the conversation that we're having as a culture about gender right now, Kilo. Mm, fair, absolutely. And I, I do, I want your, I want, the listeners here at Carousel, which um, to write me if they have questions or thoughts about what should be added to the syllabus. And I'm happy to give them credit for that too. I want this class to feel that it's community-based and there's no, I don't want you to be shy about it. If you're out there and like, I think this would be a cool assignment or I like this concept or I have questions about this. All of that's welcomed um, in this bigger design project I'm doing. What's the email? Um, you can get me at kilo, K-I-L-O dot Zamora at utah.edu. So Zamora, Z-A-M-O-R-A. And we'll put that in the show notes. Yeah, thank you. I, I want to share something, Laura, about that and just ex explore about is like nature versus nurture um, as a gender studies teacher for a moment. I've spend a lot of time outdoors, uh, backpacking by myself, swimming in open lakes, um, and big and running a lot of trails. And I'm finding myself becoming more and more gentle about who I am. And I find myself being able to question my racial identity and my gender identity and my sexuality because when I'm in those spaces, the only person I have to look at is me. And so I can spend some really quality time doing that. And I, and I wanna come back to Sylvia for a moment because I, in, your, in your writing, Sylvia, in both Cages and The Scorpion Tale, uh, The Scorpion's Tale, such a great book. I love that book so much. Thank you. And when I read it, I was like, I know this person. Um, <laughs> You, you, you state in, on your website um, that you're curious about whether science and humanities can probe one another and potentially deepen our understanding of important human questions. 
which is exactly what we're trying to do right now is we're wondering how they inform each other and probing. But in those books, in Cages and Scorpion's Tale, do, do you think that they're answering a really basic question about what it means to be a human, to be this kind of like bipedal, featherless mammal? Well, um, so so that's a very grand thought, um, and I could only hope so much that that is what my 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 creative writing fiction is doing. Um, so I'm not sure I've achieved that, but uh, I do think I do know that I'm interested in gender, have been interested in these questions, and so that and sexuality um, played a role as well as the intersection with culture um, in the Scorpion's Tale, as you know, with three of the characters who are Mexican. Um, um, one female, two female characters, one male, um, and um, in the in the book Cages as well. You know, it was a male-dominated laboratory that was studying birdsong, and male birds sing in order to do two things: we think defend a territory and attract female birds. Um, and for many, many years, um, both in reality and in the novel, the males are studying male singing. And by the end of the book, the principal investigator realizes that 30 years of his life has been spent studying the males and really what was driving the males and their abilities and uh, inabilities were the silent females. Um, so I'm definitely, I have always been interested in those things, but um, rather than having any clear answers on them, I like to raise questions when I'm writing. And then hopefully um, the reader comes to his or her, or their own uh, understanding of, of that question for themselves. Cool, thank you. Where can people find your work, The Scorpion's Tale? Is there a website we can direct people to, Sylvia? There is, it's www.sylviatorty.com and um, the King's English Bookstore has both of those novels. Um, and if they don't have them, they will order them. Great, we will put a link in tonight's show notes. Now I'm thinking about, uh, as you're exploring the concept of this course, Kilo, on gender and exploring gender in nature, um, uh, personal assignments outside of uh, to ask students to step outside of their their own nature, their own gender as they they currently express it or live it. And I'm thinking of Tom Daly, who is the UK swimmer and Olympic gold medalist, who recently got a lot of attention because he took up knitting during COVID, mm -hmm. and uh, he debuted this cardigan, this impressively knitted cardigan with all these symbols of the Olympics on it. And how, you know, everyone's like, oh, yay, 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 because it was so against what is accepted as a, um, uh, not against, but just counter, uh, swimming against the stream. He's a swimmer, right? So of uh, what a He's male a gender is. Yes. <laughs> We're going to get into some more nature there. Um, but something like that could be a really interesting assignment along with, with other things. Just to take one outside of one's own headspace, I think, is a valuable experiment. I love that idea, Laura, like Me actually too. taking up something like that. I mean, I, I lived in Denmark when I was younger and it was not uncommon there for the women to smoke pipes. And I always thought that was the coolest thing. I always thought like, <laughs> I want to be like this very wise woman sitting there with the pipe. You know, I never took it up. It's not healthy, but um, it was just such a, it was always something I'd been brought up thinking only men did that, you know, and there were these women um, I would encourage students, I mean, it will be outside the scope of this class, but travel to another country, embed yourself in another culture. Um, there's nothing like being in a different place with different cultural norms to get you to really reflect on your own uh, assumptions. 
Yeah, I, uh, for some reason, Sylvia, it, maybe it's because of the scorpion's tail and also like where we're going with this, but I'm thinking of my, my mother and one of her tales about if you're good enough to be in the house or not. And it's when she's making tortillas. And if you use a spatula, you're not good enough for the Zamora house. <laughs> but if you if your fingers are calloused enough to flip the tortilla off the grill with your fingers, then you're you're good enough to be here. And yet that feeling of has been assigned to males, just oh. the feeling of like pain and tolerance. But in reality, in so many cultures, we we see that that women who do the majority of work on the planet um, have a higher threshold for pain mm -hmm. and perform it better than males overall, but we don't, we don't assign it to them like we do males. So I think the idea of having people go outside of their culture and, or doing something that they've never done before, like Laura's suggestion, both have mm -hmm. great value. And I think that would be a, a fun part of this class to get them even in some urban exploration so thank you both for those ideas. I wanna turn it a little bit um, to ask you a question, Sylvia, and Laura, you too. It may be fun to hear from both of you. Um, how has, if it has, how has it, how has nature offered you a fresh take on your own gender and sexuality? Um, so, you know, I think my answer will be a little bit repetitive of before, and it has just been opened up a world in which there are no binaries. And, you know, I, I loved what you said a little earlier, Kilo, that being in nature has allowed you to become more gentle with yourself. Um, I think being in nature has allowed me to be released from myself. Um, and by that, I mean, when I was doing my uh, dissertation research, I was doing it in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, what used to be Zaire in the Ituri forest, an enormous forest in the middle of the Congo. And I was there for many months, um, very few people. I was completely released of questions of culture or gender. I had no mirror for four months. I never looked at myself. And I remember that being an incredibly freeing time, you know, as a young 24, 25 year old who had been kind of obsessed with issues of body image or this or that. I, I had none of that. So all I did was walk in the forest, collect data, look at things, record data, get up, do it again and again and again. And it was the, one of the most freeing, wonderful experiences of my life. And I think I was released from my self and my gender and my um, questions of identity or, or culture. And, and also you, was it with the topic that you were looking at, just to put it out there, was on monodominance, is that right? Right. I, yeah. Okay. I was looking at questions of diversity, but looking at these bizarre tropical forests that are dominated by one species. So they're essentially monocultures, which are not supposed to exist in the world without pesticides and fertilizers. Very interesting. I was just reminded, Kilo, that, you know, I was born in the midst of the sexual revolution and came of age in the 80s and the rise of androgyny in mainstream uh, pop culture. So I'm thinking of David Bowie and... Mm -hmm. um, uh, I'm thinking of divine as well and the the drag scene and all of that happening when I was basically becoming an adult and how freeing that was from the expectations of of gender of uh, being in my mind a fussy uh, girl right it was just not my path I was raised with six brothers so when you talk about nature and nurture there wasn't a lot of space for being a girl when I was kid in my family, but I didn't want it either. And I saw different role models that um, 
allowed me to do things that I don't think a generation before me could do. And so it goes to the next generation, the next generation, the next generation. So I think this class that you're trying to put together and crowdsource in a certain extent has a lot of rich material to draw on. I look forward to our, our next conversation um, with uh, your next source. Sylvia, it's been a pleasure meeting you and learning about your work. Thank you so much. And I will just end by saying that um, Catherine Stockton, who I don't know if you're inviting to this, has a new book coming out called Genders. Um, and she's going to be presenting at the King's English on August 31st. But this it will be a really interesting, as all things Catherine Stockton are. But this one really gets at the, the questions of gender. Um, and so I'll definitely be there. It's a virtual book event. Kilo, put it on, put, put Catherine on the list. Oh, um, yes, Catherine is one of, she's up there with Sylvia. Kilo and Sylvia, thank you so much. We'll put links in the show notes tonight so folks can catch up and also email you Kilo with their ideas. And again, this is all coming together down to the class title. When do you expect to have this class on offer at the University of Utah, Kilo? This class will be offered this spring. Uh, gender and nature and let's I just want to get them out of the classroom and get get them thinking very creatively in ways they've never thought before and folks like Sylvia always have helped me do that along the way so I appreciate the mentorship and all of the community input we're about to get and I appreciate you Laura as always who whenever I have a crazy idea you just like <laughs> say yes Kilo let's try it see what happens um, I, I just couldn't live in this community without folks like you too. So thank you both. University of Utah professors Kilo Zamora and Sylvia Torti. Check tonight's show notes for links to their work and more info about helping Kilo develop his new class on gender and nature. I'm Laura Jones, and that is the Radioactive Summer Break. Democracy Now! at 7, Thursday Night Psych Out with DJ Mike at 8, the Dirty Boulevard with Gianni at 10.30. I don't sound like nobody with Richard Parks at 1 a.m., Jolene and Illustrated Blues at 3, and Brand New Day with John Florence at 6. I'm out of here with a little something from Krungbin, so we won't forget. On KRCL 90.9. KRCL invites you to support back-to-school supply drives, like that of the Community Action and Fellowship Foundation. Drop off backpacks, notebooks, pens, paper, lightly used laptops, phones, and flash drives at Uprock 1594 South State Street in Salt Lake City by August 20th.